Let us pray. May the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you please be seated? There are few things in life that are better than a good road trip. Whether they're trips with family or a group of friends, they're a ton of fun, and you make great memories. Often the most memorable moments are when things don't go the way that you would expect. Like the time my friends and I were driving into the States for a Dave Matthews concert, and for some reason, when we got to the border, I got so nervous that I just kept talking. I was rambling on, leaning, I wasn't driving, I was leaning over the driver to talk to the border guard about I don't even know what. At some point, I'm pretty sure the lumber industry came up. Couldn't tell you why, I don't remember, there's probably no reason at all. Just rambling on and on. I don't know what happened. But I can tell you that every single time I get together with that group of friends, guess what they remind me about? Or maybe you've been on one of those family trips where mom or dad just happened to take a wrong turn and got lost and wouldn't admit it. And then the kids spend the rest of their lives reminding you of that moment over and over again. Judging by the looks on your face, you're trying to deny that you've ever experienced such a thing. I don't believe you. For all their bumps and twists and turns, road trips are memorable, wonderful experiences. Our reading this morning tells us of a road trip unlike any other, doesn't it? There weren't any wrong turns on this one or nonsensical ramblings to a border guard, but a moment occurred that was certainly memorable. One that changed not only the life of one man, but the entire world. Could you imagine having that happen? A history-changing moment on one of your road trips. Not just for you, but for everyone. That's what happened here. One day, Saul, the man we know as the Apostle Paul, was traveling down the road, laser-focused on the job that he had to do absolutely sure that what he was doing was right and in the service of God. And then God himself broke into Saul's life and showed him what serving God was really all about. In our series, looking at how people come to know Jesus, Paul's conversion teaches us that the grace of Jesus Christ brings about radical change even in the least expected. And because of that, we can have hope. Now to see how radical change can be brought about in those we would least expect, we need to know a little bit about this man, Saul. If you were to read the book of Acts from the beginning, your first encounter with him would come in chapter 7. 
where we are told about the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr of the faith. As Stephen was cast out of the city to be stoned, people laid their garments down at the feet of a young man named Saul. This tells us that Saul was a man of prominence. He had the respect of the people, even their admiration. We are then told that Saul approved of the execution and that he would go on to attack the church dragging off men and women to be arrested simply for the crime of being a Christian. At this point in history, Saul was perhaps the single greatest human enemy of the church. Our reading opens then by telling us that the persecution Saul had unleashed was continuing. Verse 1 says he was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. The Greek used here is the same language that is used to describe a wild animal. A wolf looking for its prey, set on devouring and destroying it. It's a picture of absolute rage. So great was his anger towards Christians that he would not stop at Jerusalem. He would hunt them down wherever he had to. And so upon hearing that some had been discovered in Damascus, he gets the permission from the high priest to go and capture them, to bind them, and drag them back to Jerusalem for trial or worse. Sounds like an obvious candidate to become the greatest spokesman for Jesus the world has ever seen, right? Totally fits the picture of the missionary we all desire to be. And yet that's exactly who he became. God, through his grace, changed his chief enemy, the one we least expect into his greatest spokesman. Paul would tell us of this himself in Philippians. He wrote, If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Saul was as good as it gets, it seems. And yet, after this encounter, he would write this. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. The one who had made it his life's mission to hunt down anyone who declared to follow Jesus now says that he would give away everything 
just so he could know him. How does that happen? How is that possible? How does the chief enemy of the church become perhaps the greatest missionary who has ever lived? The answer is the radical, life-changing grace of Jesus Christ. Look at the account you have in front of you. Verses 1 and 2, they explicitly tell us that nothing has changed about Saul. He is still the persecutor of the church. And then in verse 3, Jesus bursts in on the scene. There is a light from heaven so powerful and dazzling that it blinds Saul. And then a voice speaks from heaven. And Saul recognizes on some level that something divine is happening here. Who are you, Lord, he asks. And when he says Lord here, this isn't just some perfunctory tip of the hat. This isn't some honorific that you would give to someone of importance, like calling someone sir or ma'am today. Rather, it's some kind of acknowledgement within him that this one who is speaking is at the very least from God. Who are you, Lord? It's the question of questions, isn't it? Who are you, Lord? I can promise you, friends, that there are more people asking that question than we realize. We look at the world and we see the way things are going and we see church attendance and we look at the stats and all of it and we think people are ignoring God entirely. We think they want nothing to do with him. I promise you, friends, there are more people asking this question than we realize. Good friend of mine, he used to talk a lot about Christopher Hitchens. If you don't know Hitchens, he was a journalist and one of the chief members of a group called the New Atheists. My friend loved him. (laughs) He loved his writing, he loved his wit, and he was convinced that Hitchens was this close to being a believer. Now, Hitchens wrote countless vile things about the faith. He had nothing good to say about Jesus or Christianity or God at all. And yet my friend was convinced that even to the day that Hitchens died, he was this close. Why would he believe that? I asked him a few times because it didn't make sense to me. How could someone who was so opposed to God be this close to believing in him? And my friend's answer was this. There's no way you can be that angry at something and not believe in him. He's absolutely right. And so friends, when we look out at the world and it seems like everyone is kicking against Christianity, that they are doing everything they can, not just to keep it away from them, but to shut it down entirely, I'm telling you, there is no way they can be that angry against something they don't believe in. And so whether they know it or not, they are asking the question, who are you, Lord? 
They are longing to see Jesus. They are asking the same question that Saul did before his heart was changed. But when you ask that question, when we hear that faith-filled question, the amazing gracious response comes from Christ himself. I am Jesus, he says. Imagine that. Imagine you are like Saul. You've been attacking the church of Jesus Christ with all you had. And in a moment, in a blinding flash from heaven, your eyes are open to the truth that you've been wrong all along. That everything that you have based your life on, everything you have fought against, you've been wrong. It turns out Jesus is Lord. And Saul's life would never be the same again. The world would never be the same again. Now, knowing that, holding all that in your head for a moment, I'd like you to look at the account. I'd like you to look at the passage in front of you. And then, I would like you to tell me, at what point does Saul show that he is worthy of this divine intervention? At what point in the passage does it become clear that Saul has accrued enough merit to warrant God breaking into his life? Go ahead and look. I'll wait. There's no service after us. We've got time. It's not there, friends. At no point did that happen. There is a reason why Paul would spend the rest of his life preaching and writing endlessly about the grace of Jesus Christ, and why he would explicitly say multiple times that it is by grace that we are saved. Because he's experienced it in a more profound way than almost anyone. He thought it was about what he was doing. He thought he was on the right path. He thought he was keeping the law as best as anyone could. He thought life was all about believing and doing the right things for God. And then Jesus appears and it turns out that all he was doing was putting him on the opposition side. That he was fighting against God himself. And Jesus breaks into his life and he showed him that all, the only thing that mattered, the only thing that would save him was belief in Jesus. For his sake, Paul wrote, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of mine own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. The grace of God is so good and so radical that it can completely change the life of anyone. Even the one we least expect. Now with that in mind, I want you to think of all those in your life that you believe can never be saved. All those that you have in that not going to happen category. We've all got them, right? Let's not kid ourselves. I do. I won't name names. 
We've all got them. Think about them. In the light of the conversion of Saul, think about those people. Because the conversion of Saul tells us that following Jesus is all about his grace, start to finish. And because of that, we can have hope. Hope that there actually is no one in the never-going-to-happen category. But rather, by the grace of Jesus Christ, everyone who doesn't know him yet is in the anything-can-happen category. Because of grace, we can have hope. Hope for the non-believer. Hope for ourselves. Because if following Jesus was based on us, we would have been where Saul was. Thinking we were doing all the right things. Thinking we were a nice, good person. Thinking we were earning the favor of God. Keeping his ways perfectly. When deep down, all we're doing is driving ourselves further and further away from Jesus. It's why grace is so good. It changes us in ways that we absolutely need, ways that we didn't even realize that we need, and it sets us on the right course simply because the Lord wills it and has acted on our behalf. Because of grace, we can have hope. Now, the hope in this passage is not simply what happened to Saul. We need to talk about our friend Ananias here. Verse 11, the Lord sends Ananias a vision telling him to go and find a man named Saul in the house of Judas, who's waiting for Ananias to lay hands on him and pray that his sight may be restored. In response, Ananias is like, yeah, no problem, Lord, that sounds great. Watch me go. I can't wait to go and pray for this guy who's been throwing people like me in prison. Thanks for sending me, Jesus. Of course not. He responds exactly how we might expect him to. He's afraid. He responds as most of us would in verse 13. Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. He's basically saying, Lord, you're leading me into a trap. At best, I'm going to end up in prison. But Jesus responds by not only telling him to go, but by making the remarkable statement that Saul is his chosen instrument. Chosen to carry Jesus' name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. To put that in contemporary language, Jesus is basically saying, just watch what I'm going to do. And what is it that Jesus does? Verse 17, Ananias walks into the house and he sees this man who has persecuted him and his brothers and sisters in the faith who's been his enemy. He doesn't lash out, does he? He doesn't hit him. He doesn't kick him while he's down. He doesn't ream him out for his endless list of sin. He walks over to him. He places his hands on his head and he says, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. Saul. Saul has done nothing at this point (laughs) to atone for his sins. 
He has not done the right amount of penance to put him back in right standing. All he has done is spent three days blind. And yet this one who was deathly afraid of him by the grace and power of Jesus Christ now calls him brother. That is what grace can do. It turns enemies into brothers and sisters. You see, friends, it's not just the unbeliever who is changed by grace. It's the believer as well. You don't think that there was anger mixed in that fear for Ananias? You don't think he was angry at Paul for all that he had done? And yet because of the work of Christ in his life, Ananias welcomed Saul into the family. The grace of God radically changes even the least expected. And the grace of God softens the heart of the believer so that we no longer harbor animosity or hatred for the outsider. Instead, faithfully witnessing to Jesus, we see them repent and believe, and we leave their sin on the other side of the door for Jesus to deal with. And we welcome them home. Grace gives hope. Hope that as both the outsider and insider are changed, Reconciliation can happen. Enemies can become friends, just as we who are enemies of Christ have become his friend. To close, I want to mention very briefly a barrier to all of this. A barrier that we often face. It's one that I've mentioned before in this series and will likely mention again. I tend to repeat myself. It's fear. The fear of speaking about Jesus. Ananias was afraid, wasn't he? He was afraid of what would happen if he went to see Saul. Let's be honest, we can be afraid too. Now, I've never been afraid of ending up in prison for preaching the gospel. That really has not been an issue in the West though many of our global brothers and sisters can speak to what that fear actually feels like. No, our fears are more about how we're going to look, right? How we're going to sound. I know that fear. This is not me attacking other people. I know that fear. I know it well. We're afraid of how we're going to be received, especially in a time and place that seems to, day by day, like Jesus and his church, a little bit less. We can be afraid of being one of those religious people, right, that just hate everyone who doesn't look or act like them. We can be afraid. And because of that fear, it can be tempting to keep quiet, right? To not say anything about Jesus at all. To hope nobody asks me about what I actually believe. The antidote to that fear is grace. Because grace tells us that the work that brings someone to Jesus is actually not on them, and it turns out it's not on us either. It's on Jesus. 
Jesus is the one who saves people, not me, not you. Jesus drew Saul to himself. Jesus called Ananias to go and speak. And then Jesus acted in power to open Saul's eyes and his heart to the truth of the gospel. Jesus, by his grace, did the work. Now, that doesn't mean that as Christians we get to sit on our hands and not have a role to play, saying, you know, well, well, if they're going to get saved, Jesus will do it, so I'm just going to hang out. Nope. <laughs> We are called to speak, but we are called to speak out of the freedom that grace provides. The church, like Ananias, is called to go and speak and to pray for the wayward and lost, friend and foe alike. And since we have been called to do it, we can be sure that the grace of Jesus Christ goes before us and empowers us, just as it did for Ananias. The Lord does not send us where he has not first made the way. Jesus tells Ananias that he doesn't need to be afraid. Because as he says in verse 12, he's shown Saul that that Ananias is coming. The Lord made the way for Ananias to accomplish what he had been called to do. So it is that by his grace, the Lord continues to call his people, even to this day, his people, the church, to accomplish that same mission, to bear witness to all the world of our need for Jesus and the salvation that comes by his grace alone. No matter what the fear, it is grace that provides the antidote. Because if the conversion of Saul rested on Saul, he's never changed. If the healing and restoration of Saul rested on Ananias, it never happens. Because on his own, guess what? Ananias ain't going anywhere. He never would have shown up, but show up he did, didn't he? Show up he did. The saving work is in the hands of Jesus in his grace. What's in our hands is the call to be faithful, to go as Ananias went, following Jesus where he calls us, and to engage with the world around us, engaging with all who need Jesus, which is everyone. I know it can be a worrying thing to speak about Jesus. I know it's not popular to mention him. And I know that there are those who don't like Christians and who believe all kinds of wrong things about the church and about Jesus. I know all of that. And so I know it's easy to lose hope. But I also know that in his grace, Jesus has made the way for his people. He calls us to do his will and speak the truth of the gospel even to those we never would have picked ourselves. And when that happens, enemies become friends. Enemies become siblings. And we exchange fear and anger for the hope of grace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.